Get to the good part. Okay. Is that Yellowstone? Well, yeah. Underneath Yellowstone, there is this giant magma plume that comes 99% of the way to the crust. Oh, my God. This is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like rocks. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. Okay, we are talking all about Yellowstone today. Yes, yes, yes. Which, if you haven't noticed, is John's favorite national park. Oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever had... As much to say, <laughs> I've never been this bursting with excitement before about any national park. I'm so excited. So today we're doing the Yellowstone Fun Facts. And so John is going to take the lead on this one. And he is going to share his favorite fun facts about Yellowstone, which I'm guessing there were probably many. Oh I don't my know gosh. how you pared it down. I figured it out. But we're going to take a journey together, everybody, because it's going to take us so many different ways of being nerdy i just can't wait (laughs) oh yellowstone oldest and best oldest and best i have a t-shirt and there's a reason why that t-shirt exists it says yellowstone 1872 oldest and best national park and it's because (laughs) it's the truth oh i'm so excited about this okay so yellowstone what is it why is it here what's going on with it you know there's so many questions so the first thing the first fun fact that we're going to tackle Let's just get the elephant out of the room or acknowledge it or whatever. Yellowstone super volcano. Okay, let's do it. I'm so ready. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I feel like every couple of months I like have a a news story pop up on my like suggested feed or something like Yellowstone super volcano going to explode. You know, everyone in Western North America is going to die kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, so it's, a, I don't know, it's kind of got a bunch of mythology of its own, almost, kind of in our modern world, now that we know what's going on a little bit beneath Yellowstone. Yeah, I feel like people are obsessed with that on, like, the, if they want to get your click. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every other article is about how the super <laughs> volcano is going to blow sometime exactly. and decimate all of us over here. Exactly, but... like, even on real estate websites, everyone's yes. like, don't buy land in this area. <laughs> You never know when it might blow. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the super volcano. I'm excited to learn more. Okay. We're going to get a little bit geology nerdy for a second. So I'll try to keep it light. The earth is a ball, a big round ball, and it is 1800 miles to the center of the earth. Okay. As we know it, if everybody paid attention in seventh grade, you know, they learned. Okay. So it's a big ball. As you go deeper and deeper and deeper, you go through like the crust, and then you go through the outer mantle, and then the inner mantle, and then in the center of the earth, there's this giant molten core, you know, that is just hot and superheated, and, you know, it's made of some type of metal or rock or whatever. We don't know exactly what it is. And this is, of course, unless you subscribe to, like, the the modern King Kong version of how things go on in the center of the earth, hollow earth theory, you know. We do not subscribe to that because we believe in the seventh grade version of what's happening under the surface of the earth. So imagine for yourself, 1800 miles beneath your feet, you've got this giant molten core of hot earth, you know, down there, and it's just doing whatever it does. Well, would it disconcert you a little bit, Ash, to know that the core doesn't always stay right where it's at? That it wants to come out and say hello? Sure, yeah. (laughs) I don't know how to find out how to get to that. I think it's super cool. Yeah, it's so cool. And so 1,800 miles, boom, center of the earth. So it gets hot. We're comfortable living where we are because it gets cooler as it goes further out. The earth's crust is a pretty moderate temperature compared to what goes on in the rest of the universe and even in the center of the earth. Okay, now this is where Yellowstone gets crazy. So stretching from the core almost all the way out to the crust is what they call a giant magma plume. 
So think of this like a solar flare coming off the sun. Because what a solar flare is like something big happens on the on the sun and then like it flings out like this giant part of itself into the universe, right? Well, from the core of the planet, there is a giant solar flare, giant magma plume, a giant column of superheated magma that comes out towards the crust, out towards us. 1,780 miles. Okay. Remember when I told you a minute ago about how far it is? It's 1,800 miles to the center of the Earth. Yeah, get to the good part. Okay. Is that Yellowstone? Well, yes. So there's this underneath Yellowstone, there is this giant magma plume that comes 99% of the way to the crust. Oh, my God. Wait, 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 wait. So... Let me just try to put this in perspective then, because I thought you were going to say that. And I'm like, there's no way. But like, what about like a regular volcano? Is that directly like connected to the core of the Earth, too? Sometimes there's almost always some form of a connection. And a lot of times it's like through all these little kind of like twisted pathways. Sure, you like know, a tunnel or something. You know, yeah, there's hot yeah. spots all over the planet. Right. But this one in particular is probably the largest one on Earth. 1,800 miles. It's 1,800 miles to the end of the Earth. And it's like a straight shot up it's to like Yellowstone? It's like a straight shot. Oh my okay? So, So if you think about this, there is 1% of the Earth's volume separating us from the wrath of the middle of the Earth. <laughs> and Yellowstone. Uh-huh. Oh my so, gosh. It's going to blow. Yeah. So We're all going to die. Yeah. So 1,780 miles worth of hot magma is just like floating out, you know, pointing straight at us. That's crazy. And so there's 20 miles, basically. There's 1%, but it gets better. Okay. That 1% of the earth that is separating us from that wrath, there was a piece, a huge chunk of that magma plume that either broke off or separated itself off from that magma plume of course and now it's it's within that one percent and so it, it's like 20 to 40 miles wide or 20 to 20 miles wide long and then like eight miles deep guess how deep that is from this from the crest no idea five miles oh my god <laughs> and so that they call it a, a magma chamber is what it is and so it's just a little bit above the magma plume which is just a little bit below the surface that's insane like i'm speechless because i always heard yeah it's a super volcano you know and mm -hmm. we live well we're definitely in striking distance of that super volcano where oh, we yeah. live we'd but be vaporized that's crazy okay think of it like this this is going to make it even crazier a ream of paper you just went you just got back from the store you went to walmart or whatever and you bought a ream of paper there's 500 sheets of paper in that ream of paper. It's usually about five and a half centimeters tall, right? How many pieces of paper would you have to take off the top of that ream of paper to get to that magma? Oh my gosh. Two? One. <laughs> There's one piece of paper separating oh us from all gosh. of that. That is so cool. Okay, oh. let me let me just say so I like Yellowstone has never been my favorite. Mm -hmm. That's always been a you thing. Yeah. But the more I go and the more I learn, the higher on my list. Like it's moving its way up so fast mm -hmm. because that is just, you know, beyond all the pretty scenery and the animals and stuff, like the science part of that is just my brain is going everywhere right now. It's oh, yeah. like my mind is blown. Oh my gosh. Isn't that just crazy? There are so many fantastic tales about Yellowstone, but I actually think the truth is crazier yeah. when you think of it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> know, you and like honestly, like, I never click on those articles about the super volcano because I'm like, ugh, they're just trying to get clicks and, you mm -hmm. know, probably half of it is false, which still may be true. But learning the truth of it, I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm going to click on all those articles. <laughs> I want to know exactly what's happening. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. It's so crazy. But luckily, this, this is luckily geologic time and things happen geologically at such a slow speed that you know it's like even if it oh it just erupted that like two million years ago you know it just right. erupted it's gonna erupt again oh in 
you know, another million years, you know, so we're fine, we think. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. But the super volcano itself, the hot spot itself, because I mean, there's volcanoes all over the planet, right? But they don't all have the same type of thermological systems that Yellowstone has. And Yellowstone has the highest concentration of geysers and thermological systems anywhere on the planet. And the reason for that is because you can't just have the volcano itself. You have to have other things that go along with it, like water. And so a lot of volcanoes, like if you go to Hawaii or something like that, it rains there all the time. There's the ocean right there, but they don't have geysers like we have here in Yellowstone. Why do you think that is? Can you guess? Do you have any hypotheses without having gone into the science? Honestly, no. Uh, I've never thought about that before. We've been to a lot of volcano national parks. Mm -hmm. And it's true. You know, I mean, there are a few that have kind of like the boiling mud or, you know, some of the some of the standing water that does some cool stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, but no, I mean, I would assume it has to do with something about the groundwater, maybe? Sort of. Okay, so let me kind of explain this a little bit, because that giant magma plume is pretty much stationary. It doesn't really move. What moves is the tectonic plates that are floating pretty much on top. Okay. So you've got a few miles thick of tectonic plates. We have North American plate. And all these plates are always moving, you know, you kind of, but they move super slow, like four centimeters a year, something like that. And so you've got this massive, huge magma chamber and this giant magma plume. What happens if you put a giant mountain on top of that? It basically melts down into the magma chamber. Now you can pretty much track where this hotspot has been over the last several million years because we can see where this big, I don't know, where the land has basically flattened. Well, it's and it's forming a caldera, right? I mean, there's places in Yellowstone as you're driving where you can see the rim mm -hmm. of the caldera. Yeah, exactly. And so the North American plate, I'm going to get the directions a little bit wrong, but it was moving and you can track where it has been because it went from Yellowstone and it's kind of gone southwest over like through Idaho and, you know, Nevada, maybe sort of into California. But the reason that that flattening of the earth in its path has been so important is because it has allowed moisture and rain and snow from the Pacific coast to get in through and cut across the Great Basin area where it would have normally, you know, dropped rain on other mountains and things like that. It's flattened out enough that a lot of this moisture can get all the way to Yellowstone and drop it right there. Oh, and that's then, crazy. Yeah, and then all of these mountains and things, they've been melted by this volcano. They haven't been completely melted by the volcano. And so there's been left these giant cracks underneath the earth where magma and water can seep down in and interact. And then the water gets superheated and then it gets thrust back up to the surface as like steam. And then that's what it blows up in a geyser. And then the cold rainwater and everything seeps back down and you've got this kind of convection cycle going on oh my where gosh. the superheated water goes straight up and the cooler water from the rain and snow melts all the way back down. And it's that interaction through those cracks with this water and the magma chamber that creates this awesome cycling effect of water bursting forth on what you see in Yellowstone. Well, that's just crazy because when you drive through Yellowstone, it's like, oh, there's some steam over there. Oh, you know, like there's places we just drive right on by because it's like, meh, you know. But during uh -huh. your description, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I want to see them all, uh -huh. you know, and you like want to go and it's like that's coming straight from the magma chamber. Like, that's so cool. This unnamed plume of steam that mm -hmm. nobody cares about. Oh, yeah. You know, like, that's really cool. And then my second thought was, how in the world it makes things like Old Faithful so much more impressive? Mm -hmm. In my mind, thinking like of the, the path that the water has to take. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going down into this superheated area and then coming back up, but doing so on a schedule. Mm -hmm. That's just like, that's so crazy to me. Yeah. I, I don't even I don't even know what to say. My mind is all over the place right now. <laughs> I'm just like thinking about Yellowstone and all the cool things you can see there and putting it into perspective of 
just right on top of a magma chamber. <laughs> right. And you kind of put it back into perspective, like geologic time. We're talking things are happening in millions of years. And yet you can go to Yellowstone and see an eruption every 90 minutes. Yeah. You take geologic time, speed it up to the speed of sound, basically. And you've got, you know, these 90 minute interval on this process that's happening so frequently. It's so regular. It's scientifically incredible. And that's okay. a technical term. Yeah, no, I, I'm i with you on that. That's really cool. Yeah. And so within, you know, you've got hot springs, you've got geysers that just steam, you know, and then there's some that are cold water geysers and you've got all these different things. Hot Fumaroles, hot pots, boiling mud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're all a result of that interaction of water with the volcanic chamber down below. And depending on how much they get heated or the, the chemistry, you know, the so many different things that happen. That's why you get so many different interactions and so many different things that happen on the surface of Yellowstone. And so you can see tons of different things that the earth is doing. And it's just slight changes in geology underground that causes all these different things. And I don't know, it's just so varied. It's so diverse. It's so fun. And that is fun fact number one. Mind blown. Thank you for describing it in a way that I actually do understand. Cool. That was awesome. Awesome. Super volcano is super cool. Fun fact number two, thermophiles. So we're talking bacteria. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> but not just bacteria. Yeah, it's a okay. special one. Yes. So okay. if anybody doesn't know, a thermophile is an organism that can live in really, really intense temperature situations. Yeah, it's the extreme ones. Exactly. So yeah. you'll find thermophiles in Antarctica, you know, the Arctic Circle. You know, you'll find thermophiles in super cold places and not just hot places. But Yellowstone is known for its thermophiles for heat, you know, because of this magma chamber providing superheated water to the surface. We have thermophiles there's these little organisms that can survive in temperatures well beyond anything we could ever handle. And so there's three different kinds of thermophiles. As you walk around Yellowstone, you'll see little placards or little informative signs that you say, don't step on the bacterial mats. Just explain what a bacterial mat looks like, Ash. Um, okay, so it's like a it's it's like a flattened area. Usually it's not like very deep water, but there is just like a little bit of water. Mm -hmm. Usually, mm -hmm. I would say. Usually it's like the rock with like a little layer of water. And then you've got a whole bunch of bacteria that have made a really cool color. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I don't know. That's the easiest way I can think. Like when you see them, it will make more sense. <laughs> but it's not like it's not like a hot pool or anything. Because like you get colors in the hot pools and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Right. But like the bacterial mat is kind of up above on top of the rocks. Right. I would almost explain it. It's kind of like the green felt on like a pool table is what it kind of looks like okay. in a lot of ways. You know, you'll have different colors for these bacterial mats. You know, you'll have yellows and oranges and, you know, in some places you'll have greens and things like that. And those are the most visually identifiable that's a thermophile. That's a whole group of thermophiles right there. There's three different kinds of thermophiles, and not to get too nerdy, but there's archaea, bacteria, and eukarya. Now, archaea and bacteria, those are single-celled organisms. And so when you see like a bacterial mat, you're literally looking at hundreds of thousands of single-celled organisms just piled on top of each other. And what makes those special is they don't have, like, inside their cell structure, they don't have a nucleus. The eukarya, they can be single-celled or they can be multi-celled, but they do have a little bit more... Structure. Stru they, they have or a, a they nucleus. Have, they have systems. They have systems inside. Yeah. They're not quite as basic, I guess, as some people would just describe them. But they also, the more, like, the archaea and the bacteria, they can live in harsher temperatures than the eukarya. And so the hotter the temperature, the hotter the pool, the hotter the water, that's where the archaea and the bacteria, that's where they live. Okay, so like the, the single cell, the more basic ones can live in the hotter places. Yeah, they have just this amazing cell wall structure that 
if you were to put my hand or any just, I don't know, even a carry, if you were to put your hand or something like that inside the water of that temperature, the protein structure of the cell wall or whatever would break down like that. It would just get destroyed so fast. But these cell wall structures of these extreme thermophiles is so hardy. It does nothing to them. They're just like, oh, yeah, what a beautiful day. So probably the best example of this bacterial mat and like how many different types of organisms make up those mats and stuff would be grand prismatic, I would think. Yeah, that's the place that I think is the absolutely the best example. Because you've got the hot pool, right? It is technically a hot pool. Mm -hmm. Yes. And if you've seen a picture of it, if you haven't seen a picture of it, go Google it right now. But the part that comes out that looks like the sun's rays, Mm -hmm. you know, where the colors change as it goes further and further out from the hot pool, Mm -hmm. that's the bacterial mat portion of that grand prismatic. Correct. And so when you go walk on the boardwalks along there, you're walking right next to the bacterial mat. That's what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you go do the overlook trail and you're looking down on the spring, then that's where you'll see like the whole big effect of like how the colors change mm-hmm. as the water gets cooler. Right. Because, right, the part closest to the hot spring or, you know, the center of it, that's going to be your hottest area, right? And then as the water comes out of that hot spring and moves across the rocks right there, mm-hmm. it's going to cool. And so the colors change. Yeah. Because the different thermophiles live in the different temperatures and They're different colors. Yeah, it's so neat. And, you know, but it's so interesting because thermophiles are so specific in what they can tolerate and what they live in. And so those colors aren't just temperature differences. They are complete changes in ecosystem. And so all of those colors, those colors signify a completely different habitat, a completely different set of thermophiles. Everything inside that color is different from the color next to it, basically. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So if you have not seen a picture of Grand Prismatic, seriously. Yeah. Go look at it now. And even if you have seen Grand Prismatic, go look at a picture and think about that, that the environment changes Mm -hmm. completely to make different colors. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Think about it in this way. Okay. Grand Prismatic, I don't know, a few hundred yards long, right? 300 yards wide. And then if you expand that by like a factor of 10,000, okay, expand that to like the size of the United States and everybody in our mind, we can kind of picture, okay, like a topographical or like, I don't know, a temperature map of the US, you know, you start, let's start on the Pacific side. It's very temperate along the coasts, you know, it's generally kind of flat. And then as you get a little bit further in, it gets pretty hot on the interior of California. And then you go up the mountains you know, it gets a lot cooler. Then you, you get giant trees there and then you go back down and then you get big, massive deserts and then you go all the way across. And inside each of those temperature ranges, you have different ecosystems. You have different plants, you have different animals. And it is literally like looking at Grand Prismatic and seeing those little ridges make the biggest difference. They're like a freaking mountain range. That's so and, crazy. And, you know, they have totally different plant life, totally different bacteria. And bacteria are the ones that can move. I don't think I mentioned that. The old, they're the only ones of the three that can move. It's like desert, mountain ecosystem, you know, and then like seals on this side, oh you know, on gosh. the ocean. All in that tiny space. <laughs> All in that tiny the space. The environment is changing enough for them. I mm-hmm. mean, we can't see it really. Yeah. But you for go them, it makes a huge difference. Oh yeah. You go a difference yeah. of 10 feet. It's like going from California to Arizona. You yeah, know, that's cool. Everything is different. And Have so, I said the word cool enough, by the way? I need to come up with another word. But <laughs> I know. But no, it, it's really neat. Sometimes you just look at it. If you don't know some of these things, you just walk past and you're like, oh, look at that pretty color orange. But you don't realize you're feet away from thousands of a whole organism. It's like looking at Earth from the moon is like what you're doing. You're only seeing the color, but not seeing the complexity and the beauty of it. And so next time, you're at Yellowstone, you know, and you see these different colors, realize the difference between yellow and light yellow and dark yellow is the biggest difference in the world. It's a huge difference. Everything is different between those colors. And so thermophiles are cool. So NASA and a lot of other, you know, top scientific groups and companies and things like that have actually been studying thermophiles 
because they think and they have proven over time to actually have certain characteristics that can help us with different things. Example A, NASA believes that the thermophiles that we can find in Yellowstone are what is going to be the closest to what we'll find on other planets. So they believe that that kind of life is the most likely thing to find out in the universe. That's the first thing that we're going to find. And some scientists back in like the 1960s, they decided, oh, we'll study some some of these thermophiles, see what we find. Well, they actually found a a thermophile that they kind of used. It's totally changed the way that we live now because from that one thermophile, it gave us the, the scientists the opportunity to do something called, I think it's like PCR or something like that, PCH. But what it does is it, through that thermophile, we developed the ability to amplify DNA. When we go to a new national park, don't we often wish we had one of our own itineraries? We do all the time. I'm like, oh, I wish someone would have written this. It's so frustrating. I wish we had a dirt in my shoes itinerary because I want to know all the best ways to visit that place. I want to see all the best things and skip the overrated stuff. And I don't want to get stuck in traffic or miss out on something cool. There have been some duds in there, that's for sure. I'm offering you a magical trip to Yellowstone, Glacier, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, the Great Smoky Mountains, and many more. Head over to DirtInMyShoes.com to get your Dirt In My Shoes itinerary today and make your magical trip happen now. Which means that whole TV show, Crime Scene Investigation, everything they do there is by amplifying DNA from a thermophile. Cancer research, thermophile, genetics, you know, finding diseases and things like that, genetic diseases and contagious diseases. The way that we find a lot of these things is by amplifying the DNA, and that all came from the thermophiles. And so the scientists, as they're looking deeper and deeper and deeper into this stuff, they think maybe thermophiles were the first form of life on Earth. And so from those thermophiles, everything else came. So here's my claim. It could probably be disproven pretty easily, but I don't think anybody should try to disprove it, okay? Oh, no, I'm nervous. Okay. Here's the claim. If the spark of life began in a thermophile and Yellowstone has more geothermal systems than the rest of Earth combined and therefore more thermophiles, it is my contention that life began in Yellowstone, (laughs) i.e. Yellowstone is the Garden of Eden. And not only is it the oldest and best national park in the modern world, but in the ancient world as well. (laughs) And I propose that we add a footnote in every King James Bible that the... Oh my gosh. (laughs) That if a footnote everywhere in the King James Bible or whatever Bible you read, that wherever it mentions the Garden of Eden to have a footnote at the bottom of the page that says, also see Yellowstone. Oh my gosh, lightning strike. Um, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I could see your conclusion. I think you're a little biased. Yes, maybe. But like I said, could probably be disproven, but no one should try. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's super cool. And when you're talking about how they use the thermophiles and stuff, I think also, you know, that's something that I love. The more I learn about national parks and stuff, you know, a lot of parks, it's not just for the scenery. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are so many other reasons. I remember kind of as a tangent, but when we were at Carlsbad Caverns, they mm-hmm. had discovered a cave that had never been opened before. Mm-hmm. And there were, I'm assuming thermophiles or something along those lines, some type of bacteria mm-hmm. that was in there that they were using for cancer research and stuff like that, you know, because it is like a very pure form of life. And they didn't even know that's what they were protecting because it was found after Mm -hmm. the park was founded and stuff like that. And so I just think it's super cool. Some of these national parks, you have all the things that make them famous. But then if you can dig in a little bit deeper, you know, you can see there's actually so many other reasons Mm -hmm. to designate that area as a national park or to try to save it and protect it and preserve it. So many layers of reasons for this kind of stuff. It's it's incredible. It blows my mind. It is my contention that life began in Yellowstone. I will not dispute that, (laughs) nor do I know if I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lightning strike. Boom. So fun fact number three. There are not only thermophiles, but there are other forms of life 
in Yellowstone that only live and grow in Yellowstone. Yes, I'm so excited about this. Okay, I'm okay. all over this. All I, right. I love hearing about stuff like this. Okay, so in my journey to discovering life in Yellowstone, I found that I now have a new favorite plant in Yellowstone that I will look for every single time I go. And it is called the Yellow Sulfur Flower Wild Buckwheat Variety. Okay. Okay. Have I seen this flower? Okay. You, I think you have. You, we just haven't necessarily noticed it. But you have noticed buckwheat before. And do you remember where we found buckwheat before and we were super impressed by it? <laughs> no, I don't remember what kind of plants things are. <laughs> I, I don't remember names. I, <laughs> so no, okay. I, don't, I don't have any clue what buckwheat is. <laughs> All right. See if this jogs your memory a little bit. Okay. Okay. So. When we were living in the trailer and we were traveling around a little bit, we stopped at Craters of the Moon and we okay. explored through Craters of the Moon. Now, if you've never visited Craters of the Moon before, you have seen what it looks like. All you have to imagine is, okay, here's your first Lord of the Rings reference for the day. Imagine in the third book or the third movie when Frodo and Sam, they come down out of the mountains and they're trying to get to Mount Doom, right? And they're crossing the plains of Gorgoroth. You know, they're, they're going down into the Valley of Mordor, you know, and they're they're crossing all the lava flows. Right. You with me? Right. I'm with you. Okay, I can so picture that's, it. Yep. That's, that's what Craters of the Moon literally looks like. It is this giant land mass of just lava flows, black rock, you know, the harshest living conditions possible, you know, and yet and yet within Craters of the Moon, you'll find trees, even though it never rains there. And you'll find as you walk around, you really loved these little flowers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the flowers, they were in the lava flow. Yeah. And like we went up and over the, like we were driving the scenic drive and went up and over the, the little hill and like came down and there were like flowers all over the lava flow. And I had no idea what they were because it was like, like my brain didn't even go to this is a flower mm -hmm. because it was like, it didn't look like anything could live there at all. And so I remember like, I was like, stop the car. What is that? Because it didn't look like it could be a flower, but it they were everywhere. And yeah. so it did look like they were a plant of some type, but mm -hmm. like my brain would not make the connection because it was too barren. Yeah. There is literally, if you haven't been there, just picture Mordor because it never rains during the summertime, it can, it's so hot, way above 100 degrees. The ground temperature there easily can reach 150 degrees, easily. And then in the wintertime, it gets so cold and there is no shelter. There is winter temperatures get crazy cold. And so you cannot see how anything could ever possibly live there. And yet we took pictures just to prove it. You know, we have yeah. pictures of life in this barren, awful place that nothing should ever live. And it looks happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were thriving. They look just fine. Okay. So that is what I first fell in love with buckwheat. I was like, okay, this plant is super cool. Yellowstone in its harshest places, in its harshest living conditions, has its own form of buckwheat. And it is this yellow sulfur flower. Okay. So you're telling me it's a flower that lives in the harsh conditions. It's kind of like the buckwheat we already saw, which mm -hmm. I fell in love with, by the way. I just didn't know what it was called. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Well, just pause because I'm going to go plan a trip to Yellowstone right now. <laughs> I want to go see it. Yes. Okay. So for when we'll have to plan our trip so that we can see when it blooms because it only blooms in like late summer. Oh, okay. And so, yeah. which is, I probably haven't seen it then. Yeah, we don't normally go to Yellowstone late summer, but that's when it blooms. And it's this beautiful little yellow flower. It looks like um, a dandelion, you know, with the little cotton seeds up on top, the poofy cotton seeds. But instead of being kind of white and poofy, imagine just like yellow dreadlocks is okay. kind of what it looks like. Interesting. They're, they're just these beautiful little yellow flowers, kind of a grayish green leaf and, and stem. But... They will only grow in the lower, mid, and upper geyser basins in Yellowstone. And so if you're looking at a map of Yellowstone and you're wondering, where is that? That is pretty much from Madison down to Old Faithful. That 16-mile stretch of Earth is the only place 
where these flowers grow. And it's not even all over the place. They will only grow like right next to these hot pots, hot pools, and geysers just outside the water, basically, where there's just a teeny bit of soil and has to be like barren, I don't know, thermo ground kind of a thing. <laughs> and so yeah. that's just crazy. That is only in those places that you'll find this plant. My brain is turning because, you know, like you said, 16 miles, it's not that big. Probably, you know, if it were to go up to Madison, I doubt you'd find many near Madison because that's where mm -hmm. it's a lot more heavily treed. Yeah. And, you know, but like you get to like the fountain paint pot and the Lakeshore Drive and that area and then down to Old Faithful. What I keep thinking is like, it's so crazy that that's the only place that grows. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if you go north of Madison, you get up to Norris. I mean, that's the hottest part of the park. So you would think if they loved that type of mm -hmm. environment that they would love Norris. Yeah. You know, and then if you keep going around from Old Faithful, then you get down to like the West Thumb and stuff, which again is another area of hot pools and, and geysers and things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, my brain is just like... Why that spot? I know. Like, why here, not there? Yeah. And it's it kind of brings me back to the thermophiles a little bit because certain thermophiles only live in certain pH of water. Right. You know, or the ground has to be this kind of like iron rich versus, I don't know, like another type of mineral rich kind of a thing. And so if I was to go up there and like, if the flower could talk to me, I'd be like, how about I just move you right over here? This looks like a nicer <laughs> spot, but it'd be like, I want to be right here. You know, it, it wants the harshest condition. That's where it wants to live. It's just amazing to me. And I know that we've seen flowers, but I just never really paid attention to them because I'm always looking at the geysers or I'm always looking for buffalo. But it's incredible to me that even a flower can be incredible in Yellowstone because it is the only place on God's green earth where you can find that flower. It is specific to that spot. You can't take it home. It's not going to grow there. It needs this crazy landscape, you know? Oh, that is so cool. And also, you know, I was thinking as you were saying that, that's part of the reason probably not to try to take things home with you or to just mm. leave things as they are as well, because you never know. I mean, like you said, we don't really notice the flowers when we're in Yellowstone because yeah. we're looking at geysers, mm -hmm. which are incredible, you know, but just realizing how much of an impact you could have visiting these national parks and just like not leaving things better than you found it, yeah, you know, because exactly. so yeah, don't pick those flowers. They don't grow anywhere else. You know, think about <laughs> how much work it is for them to stay alive there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that is just that is so cool to me. I love learning stuff like that. But like my mind is blown that they only live in that 16 mile stretch. I know. Right. And it's like, so we go there for the buffalo, you know, we go there for the geysers. Those are actually more widespread. The earth is like 25,000 miles wide. You know, if you went all the way around it, if you just walked in a direction, you'd have a better chance of seeing another geyser or a buffalo than seeing that flower ever again, you know? And so it's like, we should go there for the flowers too. Oh. I am going there for the flowers. I'm like, my brain is like, okay, end of August, I'm there. I'm, and you will not see me looking at geysers. You will see me on my hands and knees looking for flowers. Exactly. I just want to smell it. I just want to see what it's, hopefully it doesn't smell like sulfur, like its yeah, name it probably says. probably so. does. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I just think those plants are so cool. And so, But there are more than just those types of plants. You know, there's a few other plants that only grow in Yellowstone, but I just wanted to point this specific one out because you know, as you're driving around Yellowstone, as you're there for your next trip, notice it's not just the big things that are miraculous. It's the little things too. It's the little bacterial mats, you know, it's the little flower that you see on the side of the road. It's like all of this stuff is a miracle. It's all amazing. It's so cool. As I'm like talking about this, I'm thinking to myself, like, I need to make one of those cheesy HR posters, you know, that people hang up in their office break rooms. <laughs> you know, I want a picture of like, on a picture of Frodo. It's right after Sam has been carrying him up Mount Doom, right? And Sam's like, I can't carry it, but I can carry you. You know, and he puts Frodo on his shoulders <laughs> yeah. and they hike up the mountain, you know. So I'm just setting the stage here. And then all of a sudden, Gollum jumps behind a rock and like smacks Sam with a rock in the back of the head and he drops Frodo on the ground. Right at that moment, I want to capture a picture of, of like Frodo's head hitting the ground 
but he opens his eyes and he sees a yellow sulfur flower, you know, and on the bottom of the poster, it says optimism. (laughs) The best HR poster of all time. I would love to see something like that up in the workplace. Oh my gosh. Coming to a store near you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So no, I think, oh my gosh. I just, I think those flowers are so cool. Life is like it says in Jurassic Park. Life will find a way, right? Yeah, that that's really cool. Okay. So we've talked about flowers enough. Let's get to something that moves a little bit more. Fun fact number four. Yellowstone is the true American safari. Fact. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Oh, my gosh. So Yellowstone is probably the most wild, untamed place in America. And it is so fun to go there because not only do you see wild geological formations spraying out of the earth, but you can see things that you won't be able to see anywhere else in ways you won't be able to see them anywhere else. I know it just blows me away. Yellowstone has the highest concentration of mammals in the lower 48. As you were saying that, actually, I was like, well, Alaska, though, you know, (laughs) I'm thinking in my mind, okay. But yeah, I did know that it has the largest concentration of mammals in the lower 48. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing is, is that like you get to see them all, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like these animals are elusive or it takes a whole lot of skill or waiting, you know, to see them. I mean, it's hit and miss sometimes, you know, we don't always see all the things. Right. But we have seen all of the things, uh-huh. I think, yeah. at least the major ones. And yeah, I mean, that to me, like you have the geysers and you have all that, which is so cool. And then you just like throw a whole bunch of animals in there, you know, <laughs> it's just uh-huh. like, it's like, what is this place? Uh-huh. It's a magical land. Oh, it's so incredible. I just love driving around because you never know what you're going to see and when you're going to see it. You know, yeah. you just have to keep your eyes open the whole time. So keep your kids, if you're listening to this and you're in Yellowstone, look out your window. Yeah, look out your window. It's <laughs> mandatory. Yeah. I mean, with our kids, too, I think when we get to Yellowstone, we're always like, OK, put everything away and start looking out the window. And they're like, Mom, <laughs> it's like you got to try to help us find something, you mm-hmm. know, and and we did like as this last trip we just went on. We just went to Yellowstone like a couple months ago and we were driving through and our kids were doing something coloring books or something and i was like okay now it's time to put them away and start looking out the windows and literally they put them away they looked out the windows and then my son was like oh look mom elk (laughs) (laughs) you know and we saw elk out by the river and stuff and i was just like oh this place it's so cool i know it's amazing so a couple of stats here there are 67 different mammals that live here including many small mammals but there's some big ones you know the big ones are the ones that people really want to see And so, like, for the vegetarians, you know, you've got the bighorn sheep, bison, elk, moose, mountain goats, mule deer, pronghorn, white-tailed deer, you know. And then for the meat eaters, you've got the black bears, the Canada lynx, coyotes, grizzly bears, mountain lions, bobcats, wolverines, and wolves. You know, you've got all the things, all All the things things. that you want to see is, like, anytime you go camping or anytime you go to a national park, you're like, I wonder what we're going to see. Those are all the things you want to see. You know, and they're all in Yellowstone and you just got to get out on the trail. You just got to open up your windows, look outside and they're just walking around. Not necessarily, (laughs) you know, just walking around, but, you know, you'll find them. We had a surprising hard time finding buffalo this last trip. (laughs) We'd see like one and the rule, our rule in Yellowstone is you don't stop for one. Yes. Because if you stopped for one you would never get anywhere. Right. You know, so we like kept seeing just like one and we're like, do we stop? Because we haven't seen anything else. And so we were, we were stopping for the one. We broke our own rule. Mm -hmm. But we did finally see a herd. Yes. Which was good. (laughs) For those of you listening, wondering, why don't you stop for the one? It's because the northern part of the, there is basically two major herds uh, or two major areas where the herds of buffalo are. And in the northern part, kind of near Lamar Valley, that herd can be up to 4,000 strong. And in the lower area near the Hayden Valley, I mean, that one's usually near one to 2,000 strong. And so you can see 
just valleys full of buffalo like you would in like dances dances with wolves wolves. that's exactly what i was thinking you can just see massive groups of these buffalo and so it's incredible and you see them in it's one of the only places where herds of buffalo can roam freely in the u.s without fences and so that's one of the things that's super spectacular about yellowstone buffalo is they can migrate to different locations they are completely wild and they look it and it's so cool they're so big they're so wild they don't care about your car they'll knock it off the road if you get in the way <laughs> you know and so they can go where they want when they want and they do and yeah. they're so cool yeah it really is like stepping back in time you know and you hear about the decimation of the buffalo herds in the west you know and that's really sad to learn about if you ever want a sad story to dig into <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes Yellowstone so special to both of us, mm-hmm. I think, because of those herds of bison that are out there just doing their thing, yeah. you know, and you could sit and watch them all day. I mean, we've watched them for a very, very long time mm-hmm. when we find a good herd. We watched a really cool herd in the Hayden Valley, um, kind of over by Mud Volcano, if mm-hmm. you're looking at a map crossing the river there and oh it's just it's so cool it's so iconically like the west yes oh i absolutely agree that the buffalo not only is the symbol of the american west like is the symbol to me some people think it's like the wild horses you know but for me it's absolutely the buffalo and some people will be like it's a bison (laughs) um (laughs) we don't we don't call them bison (laughs) sometimes we do well, I interchange. John interchange. always says Buffalo. I never do yeah. because I, I love the name Buffalo. I just, anyway, I have my reasons, but I won't get into it now. But like the Buffalo for me, think about this. Put yourself back 10,000 years, okay? Ancient man is the greatest of all hunters. And ancient man took out the mammoth and all, all the other animals that were at that time. You know, you've got giant short-faced bears. You've got mastodons, giant sloths. You know, giant beavers, dire wolves. There was even an American cheetah, which is so crazy. Um, But like ancient man hunted all of those gone. Yeah. The one remaining holdout that even ancient man couldn't hunt all the way gone is the buffalo. (laughs) And so literally when you're looking at a buffalo, you are looking at your link to the ancient world. You're looking at like you versus that buffalo. That's an ancient rivalry, man. You know, (laughs) that's a primal rivalry that takes us back, you know, thousands of years. And the the true Garden of Eden. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But, oh, my gosh, it's just crazy to me. Like, and if you think about the importance of the Yellowstone herd as the Yellowstone was getting decimated, get sad for a second, because as the settlers and as the, the railroads were coming out, They killed so many buffalo, they literally had mountains of skeletons. They crushed them up and gave them to the settlers as fertilizer. That's how much they had. The population was isolated and finally got down to like 23, 24 individuals hiding out in Yellowstone. And now they're back, you know? And it's just like, holy cow. They went from 30 million strong, maybe, as in, by some estimates in North America, down to 24. And now they're back, you know, and it's just like Buffalo are like, nah, man, I got this. <laughs> you know, they just made it. And that's why the Yellowstone herd is so miraculous because they made it. They're yeah. back. They're living strong and we're coexisting and they we've we've found a way to get along. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we meant to only talk about Buffalo, but um, if you know us at all, I mean, John's very favorite animal of all time is the Buffalo. And whenever we go to Yellowstone, like that is the highlight for him is the Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I really like liked them that much, honestly, until I met you and caught your enthusiasm for them. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. I think that's just really fun that out of all the animals that you can see in Yellowstone, the buffalo is the one that you will see. (laughs) And that's our most favorite. You know, it's not even the more elusive 
animals, although those are super fun to see too. Yeah. But I think like nothing brings more joy to our family than seeing buffalo in Yellowstone. Right. But not one, herds. Herds of them. We don't stop for one. (laughs) Has to be at least 10 strong. (laughs) Oh my gosh. For those of you who want to know what else is in Yellowstone, there's like Oh, there's like six different types of reptiles, five different kinds of amphibian, even like the the Western tiger salamander is one of them. And then like 300 species of birds and 16 different kinds of fish. And so that's why if you see a lot of people fishing in the rivers, that's why is because there's tons of good fishing here. There's just, like I said, like I said at the beginning of fun fact number four, Yellowstone is the true American safari. You will see more animals, more wildlife than anywhere else in the country and in greater numbers. So cool. Yeah. Fun fact number five. We've made it to the last fun fact. So this one I always usually reserve for human history. Fun fact number five is Yellowstone has such a cool human history and it is unbelievable. Okay, I'm ready because I know a little bit, but I don't know much. So Ancient man, like I talked about before, 10,000 years ago, you know, but even closer than that, man has been living near Yellowstone for hundreds of years, thousands of years. There has almost always been people near Yellowstone, but it's such a harsh environment that most of the time, a lot of it seems like most of the people that lived there were semi-nomadic, kind of like how people, Plains Native American tribes would follow the migrations of the buffalo. A lot of these, they were semi-nomadic. They would follow the migrations of certain animals. Namely, there was one called the Sheep Eaters Tribe. I think, I'm trying to remember how to say the name properly. I think it's a Tukudeka, the Tukudeka Tribe. They were the Sheep Eaters because their main source of food, the animal that they would follow, was the bighorn sheep. Hmm. And then they, they have a picnic area and some cliffs named after them. In oh, they do? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you're driving from Norris to Mammoth, uh, you'll pass Sheep Eater Cliffs. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and there's a there's a picnic area there too that's cool. Okay, cool. So yeah, now you know where that comes from. Is there from an ancient tribe of people that lived? And they're not even that ancient. They were there even a few a couple hundred years ago is where they, they went through Yellowstone. And they were so good at utilizing just about everything of the bighorn sheep that they would they would even soften the bighorn sheep horns, straighten them out to the right shape, harden them back up again and use them as bows. Bows? <laughs> yeah, bows and arrows, you know, bow and arrow? <laughs> yeah, no, I I was thinking like, oh, like a you know, a vessel for carrying water or something. I was not thinking a bow. No, I think that's incredible. I would of all the bows in the world, that would be the coolest to have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, no, those people were there. If you've ever heard of the Kiowa Native American tribe, Mm -hmm. they have some origin stories basing their history out of Yellowstone. And I don't know, it's just so cool. I want to read a couple of these because they're so unique and so neat. So the Kiowa, they later moved to the kind of the southern plains. But their legend states that when the earth was created, there was no homeland for the Kiowa. Doki, the Kiowa creator deity, offered the Kiowa a place to live if they were willing to make an arduous journey to a barren wasteland filled with steaming sulfurous vents and hot water bursting from the ground. After the Kiowa completed their journey, Dokai or Doki gathered them around a boiling pool of water, which crashed and thundered, called Tung Sauda, which means the place of hot water. He offered them this place as a homeland if any were willing to jump into the pool. One brave Kiowa jumped in, and when he emerged, the Kiowa's new homeland had been transformed into the most lush and abundant place on earth. The spring, which the Kiowa called Tosaldao, is now known as Dragon's Mouth Spring, located near Mud Volcano. Cool. He jumped into that? That's what they say? I guess, yeah. Which is so cool. If you've ever been to Mud Volcano, yeah. <laughs> that's that one of my a, favorites. Adds a cool level of of complexity and legendariness to it. The Shoshone tell a story about the creation of the park's landscape. Coyote, in the guise of a hungry traveler, asked Mother Earth in the form of an old woman to boil some fish for him to eat. The woman agreed, on the condition he not touch her basket of fish. As soon as she turned her back, he knocked over her basket the spilled contents turning into Yellowstone Lake, 
Water flowing from the newly created lake formed the Yellowstone and Snake Rivers. Coyote attempted to stop the flow of the water with rocks, which became the upper and lower falls of the Yellowstone River and Shoshone Falls on the Snake River. Cool. I think that's cool. It talks yeah, about the, the, the upper falls, the yeah. waterfalls. This is another fun one. It's the crow. So, old woman's grandchild, who battled many animals and turned them into mountains and hills once they were defeated. After he killed a bison and a mountain lion, he created two of the park's geysers by placing these animals into the ground near one another, where they still breathe out hot air. The crow also report that steam vents around Yellowstone Lake were formed when a crow man heated rocks and threw them into the mouth of a massive water beast, killing it and saving the lives of Thunderbird's offspring. A crow man named Hunts to Die, born well before the establishment of the park, relayed stories of how the tribal members believed benevolent and helpful spirits were associated with the geysers. Hunts to Die's oral history is among the earliest to contradict the stories that Native Americans feared the geysers. Oh, interesting. Interesting, because I was thinking, you know, areas like that often are avoided mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> in, the, in the stories. It's somewhere that is evil or, you know, has bad spirits. Right. Well, so that that's really cool. I think we've found in our travels that a lot of the white or European explorers have a tendency to demonize or deify certain things, like half the things are angels and half of them are devils yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of the Native American history, people spread the, the myth that they were afraid of this kind of place when actually they kind of thought that they were benevolent spirits. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. Well, kind of a, a starting place, as you mm-hmm. so eloquently stated earlier about the Garden of Eden. Yes. You know, that type of, yeah, that type of mentality where, you know, you can see all the life that comes out of Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Totally makes sense that it's the Garden of Eden. Now, after the Native Americans, it was so cool. So, like I said, I titled number five, Yellowstone is unbelievable. And I did that on purpose because, I mean, the, the Native American tribes, they have some, these really cool legendary tales. And, As Europeans explored it, that kind of tradition continued. And Lewis and Clark on their expedition in like 1805, 1805 to 1807, I think was what it was. They came within 50 miles of Yellowstone, but they bypassed it. They didn't actually go in, but they had heard tales about Yellowstone from some of the Native Americans. And after that, you know, there were some wars and a lot of some of the trappers ended up getting that were out here, got pulled back east, you know, for some of the like the War of 1812 and stuff like that. And so when the trappers came back out, like John Coulter was one of the early explorers of the area. Jim Bridger was one of my favorite explorers that explored the area. And what was so funny about these mountain men is that when they would sit around campfires is they would tell tales of their explorations. And they would describe things that they had seen. But in Yellowstone, you don't even necessarily need to exaggerate it because it's so otherworldly already. But Jim Bridger especially would spin these tall tales that people would just be like, not a chance. He's totally just telling these fibs. But for reals, he was telling stories. He would describe Yellowstone and people back east, nobody believed what these mountain men were talking about because they kept mixing in these tall tales with what actually was going on. It wasn't until, imagine that John Coulter explored the area like 1807, 1810, that kind of time frame. It wasn't until like the 1870s, when after the Civil War, when the U.S. government sent out like three different expeditions. And finally, on the third expedition, they sent out a sketch artist, a photographer, and a painter whom you know, the painter, Thomas Moran. It wasn't until they came back with pictures and illustrations and paintings of Yellowstone (laughs) that people believed what was actually out here. It was crazy because Jim Bridger and a lot of these mountain men had spun so many wild tales about what actually was going on and mixed in so many crazy things. Nobody believed it. 
And let that be a lesson to you kids about <laughs> the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, That's so funny. Oh yeah. Because I mean, really, how do you describe Yellowstone? Oh if, man. If you've never seen it before, like in a day and age where, you know, social media wasn't a thing and, and the internet wasn't a thing, which wasn't that long ago, mm-hmm. but like, you know, you go back further, even, even print magazines or anything like that, you know, in the 1900s. And even still, I mean, you wouldn't even be able to get any type of grasp, I think, on what Yellowstone actually is. Right. Without seeing it for yourself. So. Oh, yeah. Well, it's so crazy. When if you think like now that we know that it exists, it's not so unbelievable to us, yeah. you know, but before that, geysers I mean, Yellowstone has the highest concentration of geysers. It has the highest concentration of mammals in the lower 48, has the highest thermophile, you know, all these different things. And until you know that place exists, those things are rare. Yeah. And so, like, people are describing hell, basically. Yeah. Boiling water bursting forth out of the the earth. You know, (laughs) the smell of sulfur and dragon's (laughs) breath coming out of the earth. You know, the whole earth smells like hell is burning underneath you. And so a couple of Jim Bridger's tales. So like the fishing in Yellowstone Lake, he said that he would fish in Yellowstone Lake, but the top layer of the water was boiling hot, mm-hmm. you know, because of the hot springs. And so after he caught a fish, he would reel it in nice and slow <laughs> so that as he pulled it out of the water, it was cooked and ready to go by the time he ate it. You know, there was another one where... This one is somewhat true. Like in the northwest corner of Yellowstone, there was quite a few petrified trees. Yeah. And so, but he told a story about how when he was exploring the petrified forest, not only were there petrified trees, but petrified grass. So his horse couldn't eat. And there were petrified birds singing petrified songs, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so just, just exaggerated it just a little bit more. And then there's two more. One more is on your way from Norris to Mammoth, there's a cliff called Obsidian Cliff. Uh-huh. And that area is actually super important because native people would mine obsidian from there and then use it for trading and making tools and things like that. And actually, it's the highest concentration of obsidian like anywhere in this area of the U.S. And so they would find that obsidian all the way back east. That Native American people would trade with it. Well, the obsidian was so glassy and it's such a huge rock face of glassy obsidian blackness. He described an experience about hunting where he saw this giant elk and he snuck up on the elk. He get closer and closer to it and he pulled out his gun and he shot his weapon, hit it dead in the heart or wherever he hit it, but it didn't even move. He got closer and he shot it again. And as he got closer, he's like, what is going on? He got closer and realized that it was a giant translucent wall of glass that was actually magnifying an elk five miles away. (laughs) Uh, I could just imagine sitting around a campfire with him. That would be awesome. Oh, my gosh. It'd be so much fun. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then this last one I think is just really funny. In Yellowstone, there was this mountain and it was so flat that it had an amazing echo property. Like it could really do an amazing echo. But the problem was that it wouldn't echo you back for six hours. Well, Jim Bridger discovered that he could use this to his advantage. So at night, when he would go to bed, he would say, wake up. And then in six hours, when it was time to get up, he'd hear his own echo coming back to him, waking him up. He had his own wake-up call in the morning, <laughs> courtesy of this incredible mountain. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. So anyways, nobody believed these stories. Nobody believed these tales. Nobody believed Yellowstone was real until finally they had pictures. They had beautiful paintings that all this was real. But Yellowstone really is unbelievable. And I want to keep it that way. You know, I think we should keep spinning wild tales to tell our kids and our friends and our family, you know, about Yellowstone to build up the excitement. Because once you get there, you're going to realize that the truth is just as good. Yeah. 
it is just as cool as any of the wild tales we could spin. You know, as we started out with fun fact number one, realizing, you know, about the center of the earth coming up to visit us up here, you know, it's just the truth is as cool as any tall tale Jim Bridger ever told. And that is your fun facts episode for Yellowstone. So cool. My mind was blown several times. So that is awesome. And hopefully everybody gets to experience this on their own. Yes, absolutely. Take a chance. Next time you're here, notice even the small things when you get here, because everything about Yellowstone is so neat. It's all miraculous. It's all amazing. It's a very special place. And I hope that you guys enjoy. Talk to you later. Thanks for exploring the national parks with us. Please share, like, and subscribe. And if you need any help planning your own trip, click on over to dirtinmyshoes.com. See you next week. Same time, same place. And don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes.